HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by The Great Grow Along. Sign up at greatgrowalong.com. You are listening to Fields, the podcast, with Melissa Metric and Wythe Marshall. On Fields, we bring you stories about the future, present, and past of urban agriculture, and in general, explore really interesting concepts and meet lots of fascinating people who get up every day and grow food in and around cities, starting with the city we live in, New York City. Moreover, we'll investigate all the whys behind getting up in the morning and working as a farmer in the city today. Hey, welcome to Fields Podcast. Today, Melissa and I are talking to our friend, Maya Kutz, who's an urban farmer and uh, activist and a really great person. And she's helped us a lot thinking about this show and what we should talk about. Uh, This interview was recorded a few months ago before we we were able to launch the show, but it's still very relevant and uh, concerns things that are in motion. So, you know, there are some updates that you can find by checking out links that we're going to provide along with the show notes. But uh, Maya Kutz's work is still really important. Uh, Brooklyn Grange still exists. And of course, uh, people are still in need of aid, of mutual aid um, to help with uh, the problem of food insecurity, which has grown really, um, unfortunately, pretty bad due to COVID-19. So uh, with that, let's listen to some of the work that Maya Kutz is up to. um, And thanks for listening. So yeah, my name is Maya Kutz. I use she, her, or they, them pronouns. I got into urban agriculture as someone who grew up in Brooklyn, um, Brooklyn born and raised. Um, My parents had a little backyard, but I was never like really in it. Like that was, gardening was like not my thing when I was a kid, but I took this class in high school with um, Dr. Renee Marion on um, the history and culture of food. And I read parts of Omnivore's Dilemma. And then I got on this kick about the whole corn monoculture evil thing for like three years. (laughs) Like that was my senior thesis in high school. All of my high school friends still tease me. It's like, hey, Maya, hey, Maya, corn. And, you know, just because like they're basically siblings at this point, it works because it's very irritating. (laughs) Um, So I took that in high school and then at the end of high school, I was like, you know, I'm reading these things, I'm thinking these things, I'm angry about these things, but I've never actually like got my hands dirty, I should do that. Um, I went woofing at a community farm upstate for about a month, and then for the other month that summer, I volunteered 
like as a full-time volunteer at Battery Park City in their horticulture department. Um, that uh, relationship with Battery Park City actually ended up being a um, summer job for me for the rest of college, which is really cool. Wow. Um, so every summer I would spend at least a month, if not the whole summer, out getting my hands dirty doing some of that work. Um, during college I was studying engineering uh, with a focus on environmental studies. Um, because I was interested in food, I was interested in renewable energy, I was interested in environmentalism in general, but I wanted a degree that was like more concrete than environmental policy and science. Um, and engineering was sort of like, okay, I have the chops to actually like, do stuff about this problem. Like I have an approach to do stuff about this problem. And I was also concentrating, which was like a minor at Smith, um, in sustainable food. So hydroponics and aquaponics seems like a really cool intersection of those things. Like I was interested in the farming stuff and the food system stuff. And I was also studying engineering. Um, and for those who don't know, listening to the podcast, hydroponics is a technique for growing plants without soil uh, and in, with a nutrient solution. So you're fertilizing plants without using any soil. You're, it's an irrigation technique, basically. So I was like learning a little bit about hydroponics from college because it seemed really cool. I ended up interning at Brooklyn College where they had a little aquaponics program while also like doing my summer gig at Battery Park City. And I ended up getting like straight out of school a job as a lab assistant for Cornell University Cooperative Extension at their, um, in their HASTEP program, their hydroponics, aquaponics, science and technology education program. I think I got that right. Uh, Professor Wilson Warner would be a little bit peeved with me if I did not, but it's been a few years. Uh, so I stayed there for two years and I was doing a lot of teaching around hydroponics and aquaponics and just like getting, you know, some hands-on experience with like how those systems work what's a valve, how do you turn on a pump, how do you know when a pump is broken, like what are filters, like all that like pretty basic stuff that they don't actually teach you in engineering school, surprisingly. Um, even when you're like studying fluid mechanics. Wait, so Maya, you worked with Professor um, Filson Warner at, what was he at what high school? Food and Finance High School is, is his home base, but he has uh, several sort of um, satellite classrooms around the city. Wow, so you worked with him. Yeah, for two years. Wow, so so why you told me about Professor Filson Warner and then I actually took my intro to herb ag class to the high school. Um, oh. Where is that located again? It's in Hell's Kitchen. It's on 50th Street between um, 9th and 10th Avenues. Yeah, and he has an amazing setup. He has this whole aquaponics setup. Like, I've never seen such an aquaponics setup in the city. Yeah, did you get to see the greenhouse, or you were, like, on the third floor? The third floor? He took us throughout the whole thing. So we were on the bottom oh. floor, and we saw all of the, like, fish tanks. Yeah. And then we went up to the other floor. I guess you're talking about, like, the third floor, um, mm -hmm. where it was, like, the indoor ag, and then we also went to the greenhouse, which is also indoor cool. ag, but, like, wow. I left right when that greenhouse was coming online, so sadly, okay. I didn't get to work very much in it. While I was working with Professor Warner, I was um, running, I started a local chapter of this group, Engineers for a Sustainable World. So, the New York City chapter, I wanted it to be, like, project space and, like, hands-on and everything, so, we ended up working with Hellgate Farms in Queens. Uh, 
building a very small aquaponic setup that was a huge learning experience for me and the people who became good friends that I did it with. Um, just like working with Professor Warner was great because I was seeing everything in action, but it was already like well designed. Doing the designing myself meant I made a lot of mistakes. So like if I were to go back and try to install an aquaponic system on that site now, I would do it like a totally different way. Like, wow. I, yeah, I would not have done it the way that I did it for sure. <laughs> for one, I would have had a filter on that pump that was working really hard pumping like fish water up 20 feet um, instead of just relying on the solids waste filter, not enough. Yeah, so it's kind of interesting just um, your history and like studying engineering and also studying food sustainability. Yeah, just in, in and how that kind of combined in a sense for you to then start working within hydroponics and aquaponics. Can you kind of just give us an idea of like, um, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but but do you think that hydroponics and aquaponics is sustainable and like how it fits into that pathway and why? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> I think so. Sustainability is not a straightforward like definition. There is no single definition of what it means. Um, I believe that the UN definition has a three pillar um, definition, financial, uh, environmental, and social sustainability, that you can't have true sustainability without accounting for all of those pieces, which sort of also plays into like the Green New Deal and environmental justice and all of that. You can't have a good system if you're not taking care of people and planet and also like not going into financial disaster all at the same time. Whether hydroponics and aquaponics is sustainable, I think currently, honestly, no. I think we have potential to get there. And I think there is a niche for these types of technologies to play. Um, there's a certain type of crop that gr grows very well, very efficiently, very nicely in hydroponic and aquaponic systems. And those happen to also be crops that are like really critical to be very fresh, to be nutritious, and to be able to like reach everybody. Yeah, I think there is definitely overlap and like room for it to become sustainable. I think the fertilizer use and the infrastructure requirements and the energy requirements, those are the three things that are sort of sticking points in my mind. A lot of this is like more instinctual. I haven't done like a ton of like hard reading on this, but this is for like from talking to people and seeing systems and seeing how like most hydroponics runs, most hydroponics runs run to waste, which means not recirculating the water and not recirculating the fertilizer and causing a ton of agricultural runoff. There, there's no justification for that. That's like hothouse tomatoes in the Midwest or something. When we're talking about sustainability, for me, it's like I'm really interested in hydroponics as someone with like an engineer's training. I'm fascinated by that, like trying to break down all the needs of a plant and trying to provide them in, this, in different ways. So I'm drawn to that. And I think that there is a potential role to play. I don't think that sustainable agriculture is any one thing. It's gonna be a lot of things working together to create a system. But a lot of the energy requirements are really, really high. You need a lot of plastic. You need to build a greenhouse where if you're doing field agriculture, you don't need to like build 
all that infrastructure and bring in all that like glass and metal and plastic like that's a lot of stuff yeah well not yet because <laughs> with climate change we'll we'll see how things do right. especially <laughs> in certain areas yeah you're right you know why we're, we're talking about the world as it is today which even now it's hard yeah, but but also I think you're right to um, the general point is really important that like just because techniques could be sustainable in some way doesn't mean that practitioners use them that way or that's even really the point from like a business like a farm business perspective because of the logics of capitalism it's all about money so like if in the short term you can make money growing tomatoes in sort of basically plastic tents um, that you replace every season and using pesticides. Uh, you could do that and it is a kind of controlled system, um, but it's not really good for the world in any way. I mean, you know, and you can scale that up in all these directions where like you could spend a lot of money and time with a big plant factory with a lot of lights um, and HVAC equipment and that's using a lot of carbon and you're growing food well with like very little water, no pesticides, but your energy right. cost is through the roof. Is that better for the world? I mean, how do you sort of begin to rank those things? So I do think some companies are really trying to like do the math and do better. Um, and even then they're often mostly focused on those environmental metrics and to your point, if, if they're going to include the social metrics as well, it's like, well, then that's a whole other set of things you have to take into account. So, yeah, I think, you, you know, it's, it's interesting to talk to you because I know you're, you're passionate about this stuff and have seen a lot of sides of it and have seen different companies and how they sort of approach this issue. Um, but, it, but you're right. It's not sort of easy. It's not like either or sustainable or not sustainable. Just picking up on one word that you used that I think is really important for understanding agriculture in general is control. Yes. All agriculture is trying to control nature all kinds of agriculture but there's different approaches yes so like in indoor ag or in controlled environment agriculture you're trying to actively control different features of the environment the temperature the relative humidity different metrics um versus like some sort of resilient polyculture field system you're trying to create a system that can withstand variance which is still creating some kind of control but you're kind of like letting the system control itself or you're trying to build a, a system that has that resilience to be able to withstand interruption if my pump fails in a hydroponic system for a day my plants are dead yeah because that just made me think of like um the idea of uh the book one straw revolution and fukuama where he is completely against the idea of control and he's like listen i'm a lazy farmer i just want to step back and i'm gonna let nature do its thing but i'm still gonna i'm still gonna throw these seeds out here you know even if i don't necessarily sow them and i'm gonna cover them in clay so that birds don't eat them but i'm not gonna like till the soil i'm not gonna like over prune i'm not gonna spread all these pesticides and all this other stuff so it's kind of also interesting just like the philosophies behind agriculture and how there is a lot of, I don't know, it, it seems like the more I kind of look into it and research it, that a lot of these growers are also like philosophers. I don't know, is that yeah. taking it too far? No, not at all. I think when I read that book, it was fascinating. And there was also like that one niggling thing that drives me nuts when I'm hearing about all these alternative types of agriculture his labor situation. He relies on free labor. That was uh, my understanding of the book. He relies on all these young people who are coming and like admiring his work and be like, hey, can I just like hang out, live on your land? Like a sort of like woofing situation. My read of it, and maybe I'm missing something, 
was he wasn't paying them. Interesting. They were just like happened to be at a place in their life and had the interest and whatever to come help him work his land in the, for the season. I can't, as an American, I cannot think about agriculture and unpaid labor in a unbiased way. Like, I mean, that is definitely a huge topic. And that's, that's also a huge topic within like urban agriculture and with like, you know, the woofing program in general. Yeah, it's, uh, I think it's, it's, it's also interesting to bring up this idea of, um, you know, farmer slash like guru who's like, show me your ways, you know, yeah, but then, or, yeah, yeah, and also who's able to do that, like, who can really take a couple of months off and go live on a farm, and so there is, like, a very large kind of, yeah. you know, that is definitely kind of a huge kind of topic, but then it's interesting because there's also, you know, other programs that I am a part of that's, you know, like I do have volunteer days at the NYU Urban Farm Lab, right. you know, for students, but that's, but I'm not having volunteer days five days a week, you know, eight hours a day right. <laughs> or 10 hours a day. And also NYU, I'm assuming is a nonprofit institution, so it can take volunteers, no? Yeah, oh, well, so okay. the farm, no, 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 so the farm, so the, um, the NYU Urban Farm Lab, um, I know that we cannot sell any of the produce. Um, and it is specifically educational. So we don't sell any of it. And right now we're about to start donating it to the Boys and Girls Club in Harlem. So I'm trying to confirm if Fukuoka paid his farm. Yeah. Um, but I mean, in general, I take your point that like, cause I, you know, I just was watching like, you know, biggest little farm and there's definitely, um, this myth of the small family farm that I think in the current generation of new farmers, um, often, yeah, it, it like doesn't account for labor in a way that makes total financial sense unless it's like tourism or yeah, like a woofing program. It's like a college internship, which isn't necessarily, it's not that any of that's bad. Um, yeah. But it, I do wonder uh, if that ties into the, to me, the bigger question mark, I, I wouldn't say it's a critique, but with Fukuoka, like that book is super inspiring. And I'm really glad, Melissa, you recommended that I read that, um, One Star Revolution. But it, it is very specific. It's like one small piece of, I think, pretty marginal, like citrus growing land that a guy manages and sort of rehabilitates um, through essentially doing very little, all those certain strategic interventions. But it's like kind of a question of like how you would apply that to feed the world, which is not, you know, I think I say that um, in quotation marks is like, that's what big agribusiness would say is like, well, how do you grow enough X, Y, and Z? And, you know, partially there's answers like, well, maybe we don't need X, you know, we don't have as many options or we don't need the same staple crops. Like we grow too many almonds, we have too many cows. So yeah. too much corn, too much soy. But like there's other things where you don't have enough of it that's really great. Um, and, and there's more diversity out there, stuff that really isn't grown commercially at all. Um, you know, then maybe that's one answer. But I do think there's still a question around like, like scalable practices and like one guy doing kind of weird, almost like lifelong art experiment on a piece of marginal land isn't really the same as like necessarily or I don't I don't know how it becomes translated. I know some have like he has followers like other pioneers of, of agroecological farming, but you know, how do you do that in the city? How do you do that at scale? Um, I think people take different learnings from like that book. Um, but, but I've never, I've never seen like a direct, like this is how you do one straw revolution. And it's not supposed to be direct, right? Like, right. It's, well, he, it does read very much like a philosophical, like, yeah. like this is not about like, you know, those questions of, of scale and, and social order. 
Um, so it is asking the wrong question on, on purpose of, of the book, but. Yeah, I mean, my only pushback against that would be that, um, you know, like with small scale farmers who moved upstate or whatever like that, and if they're doing a permaculture technique, or for example, cultures that have been doing agriculture for thousands of years that have been doing it in a sustainable way, in a semi-permaculture way, where many societies lived off of that for thousands of years before there was agrobusinesses. So that's just like my slight pushback. And also that most of the food that we eat is called specialty crops, which we both, which we all know. And a lot of the huge agrobusinesses are growing corn and other stuff that is, you know, made to feed animals and all these other things. So it's like, or ethanol or, you know, so, so it's just, I don't know. So that's my only like small little like, Yes, I know that we can't. Well, I don't. I don't know actually. No, I don't know. Right, right. I think it's a question. That's why I say I think the book is great as a um, a strategic intervention in the form of a question or a provocation. I'm not sure it's a practical manual, and I and I am am sure from my understanding of the translation I read that Fukuoka didn't intend it to be a straightforward practical manual. It's not like yeah. a practical you know, here's how to do farming for for anyone. It's much right. more of like a thought starter. Um, and it's a book that's now, what, 50 years old? I mean, you know, I, you know, I, I definitely would give the guy credit for at the time that that was totally, you know, revolutionary. Um, and there's still a lot to learn. But I do yeah. want, you know, the, the part of me that's like, not just someone who admires farmers um, who are practicing regenerative, pra you know, doing regenerative practices, but is also like a socialist who lives in a big city. I do wonder about like these questions, like Maya, you bring up labor, you know, did it, how much did he pay? Was he yeah. a good manager of humans um, in addition to like rehabilitating the land? You know? Right. And yeah, I don't know for sure that he didn't. That was, I was listening to an audiobook while at work. So I'm saying that with a grain of salt of like, I might have missed a sentence that would have changed my understanding of how of his relationship to his, his workers. So yeah. much, you've done all these fascinating things. You, you've mentioned some of them. I think you still have many to mention if you want. <laughs> Sure. Uh, I'm just going to go in chronological order, if that's okay. So I left Cornell after two years because I wanted to get some more like real hands-on experience in agriculture. Because like my role at the Cornell job was um, mostly educational and doing maintenance on small systems or medium scale systems, but um, still not production. So I ended up working at a bunch of different startups and small companies. Um, so pure spinach or from elemental farms was one of them. They had, they were renting space out of the Rutgers, um, eco complex greenhouse in South Jersey. So I was there for a little under a year, which was really cool. Cause it's like, I saw the whole system get built. I saw the very beginnings of like trying to develop systems of like how, like workflow, how do we make this efficient? How do we get from packing, taking all day to pack a certain number of clamshells to doing it in three hours, like developing those efficiencies. I was at Green Top Farms, which is a catering company actually, and they're doing really cool work right now in, in particular where they are um, buying a lot of local food, they've, which has always been part of their mission, and delivering it to people in need around the city. So they're awesome. They had a little grow room that was like a little hallway, like I think it was five feet by 20 or something. 11 feet high and it was like 10 feet of channel of uh, channels with microgreens in them so like a really really tight space wow um 
I went in and out of the, that space. And like anyone who's done indoor ag knows this feeling of like going into a cave and coming out and the weather is like totally different. It's like, when did we get a foot of snow? Yeah, it's like the future is now, right? So it's yeah. like, what does that feel like? Like for, for those people who have never experienced indoor growing, like what, I mean, but then it's like, you know, we go inside air conditioning and we go outside and it's a hundred degrees out. So we do experience that or we go inside and it's heated and we go outside and there's a foot of snow. So it's like, we're not so, you know, we're not Absolutely. all. I think everyone has that like a sense of that feeling. Just like imagine the going inside where there's air conditioning only there's also half a dozen fans. So it's really loud and the pump. and there's light, but it's all artificial light. You don't have a lot of natural light if you're in a completely controlled environment. Um, and you've also got the sound of the humidifier or the dehumidifier, depending on your environment. And sometimes, depending on the type of grow room you're in, the light might actually be purple, not white, which is really harsh on your eyes. Like some lights specifically build in some white light just so you can actually like see. So the purple lights thing, is really cool. It's like targeting the spectrums that plants actually use for growing. But because there's no green light, they're absorbing all of the light. Like basil looks black under purple lights because it's absorbing all of the light that's hitting it. There's no green light wow. left to reflect back at your eye, so it doesn't look green, which is really cool. But also, like, how would you diagnose a nutrient issue if you can't see if a leaf is yellow or not? That is such a good point. And how do you, yeah, these details. Like I look at color so much when I'm outdoors. It's like my pepper leaf is yellowing. I know it's nutrient deficiency. I know it's watering too much or, you know. Right, exactly. Well, and a lot of companies do white light now. Um, for the, these reasons you specified, the worker weirdness of like you're in pink light or purple light all day. And then also, yeah, like, like it makes certain tasks harder, even though, yeah, theoretically it's gaining some kind of efficiency. So I feel like that's an interesting arc where like companies went to like hack the plant with light, but then now have yeah. to really think about what that, what that looks like. Yeah. They're like actually white light, you know, like full spectrum light, sunlight, that, that, I guess that's not bad. So bad. I'm like hobbyist lights, like we'll have a switch on them so you can switch to full spectrum and to purple. Ah. Um, um, greenhouse lighting is even more different because you're supplementing light, not replacing it, which is something I had to learn uh, more recently. So uh, getting back to that. So green top farms, pure spinach. Um, I also spent some time being the farm manager at uh, Green Food Solutions, which does kind of a lot of different consulting and green roof, um, like green roof farming type of consulting, gardening of all type of consulting, I think. Um, and I was farm managing an 80 tower, tower garden farm on a rooftop in Bushwick, which was also my first experience farming outdoors, ironically. Took me a wow. while to get there. Ice is a thing that's interesting. <laughs> I didn't learn that until like three years into it. Wait, but why would you have to deal with ice if you're, because usually during the growing season, you know, if you're growing outdoors, usually you're not growing in conditions. We didn't shut down till November for the season. Mm. And we didn't really have heat in the little propagation greenhouse where we kept a couple tower, towers going as like a demonstration. 
Um, I have a really cool photo of inside of that greenhouse. It froze in a really, really like harsh cold snap. And water sort of like overflowed and frozen icicles down the tower gardens. It's really cool. Yeah, Nada, like I'm I'm usually around soil. And so I don't think of I've never been around hydroponics or aquaponics when it gets too freezing. Like if my little, you know, 50 cell pack freezes in my greenhouse in March or something, like I'm like, okay, this will defrost. Hopefully my plants will be okay. But I've never dealt with, yes, a waterfall of ice down my tower. It's a weird, it's a weird thing. The whole the whole space is really weird because it's 80 six foot tall white plastic um, towers that are like fountaining water kind of down the, the back of the inside and then the site yeah. sites are like around it. And um, and y'all manage them, or, or you, you used to manage it with, with the people who started a company um, for the building itself, right? Which is like nice new apartments in Bushwick. So it's like a weird area. It's a weird new building that's very fancy. Actually, my friend moved into there after you left as manager. So uh, I you, you were kind enough to let me like volunteer, like harvest. Um, but then I got to see like what it is inside. Um, and it's just, it's like a very interesting mix of things. So I hadn't even thought of like, oh yeah, like ice and like all these other environmental issues. Cause it's also a roof. So it's not like a field. Like I don't right. know how different that is, but I wonder like in terms of like wind or like just being, oh. like, it must be kind of different to be that high up. It's, it's absolutely, absolutely. I think it's, is it like every thousand feet you go up, it's three degrees colder? I would believe that. I don't know if it's a thousand feet up. It's not like that big, but it's, yeah. So like, <laughs> I don't know. I think that might be true in like environment, like in the air around, but I also sometimes feel like the, like at Brooklyn Grange where I am now, it's hotter on the rooftop because I'm in like more direct sun and there's like no shade. Exposure. You have more exposure. So that is the thing about roofs. It's like more wind, more it's, intense heat. Yeah. Yeah. Having just come from the greenhouse, definitely more intense heat. Uh, okay, so that brings me to my latest job. I was just about like getting into a little bit of teaching at um, New York Botanic Gardens, which I'm still doing uh, virtually. Uh, once a year, I teach an intro to hydroponics class of five weeks. And I now work um, at Brooklyn Grange as their greenhouse manager. So Brooklyn Grange is a rooftop farming company. It is triple bottom line, which means people, profit, and planet. So that's referring back to those three pillars of sustainability. Um, so they're trying to be a profitable company while also still being a sustainable company and still caring about both their people and also their community. In terms of the actual like, structure of the company, um, we have three different farm sites. So Long Island City was ironically the first one, but we had already uh, branded as Brooklyn Grange. Um, Brooklyn Navy Yard is the second, and where I work primarily is Sunset Park, which is our newest and biggest farm, which also has my uh, home away from home, a 4,800 square foot greenhouse, which is half hydroponics and half microgreens. So as greenhouse manager, that means I'm not really doing the microgreens. We have another manager who works on that. Um, but I take care of the greenhouse as a whole. Like I program the settings and everything. Like when do the vents open? When do the fans go on? When do the lights go on? Um, as well as like managing the hydroponics operation. Do you have something like set up to your phone so you could check how everything is? I have a way of checking the temperature only, but no way of um, accessing the controls. 
it's possible to get that, but a lot of American greenhouse tech is like 1990s interface. So it would have cost a lot more money to get the extra CD-ROM to install something to be accessible from a computer. And also I would have needed a computer that could use a CD-ROM. But that's honestly like, it would be nice to have like alarms when things go wrong, but I don't really wanna be making changes when I don't have eyes on it. Uh, personally, that's just like my preference for managing big mechanical complicated systems. Huh, that's a great idea. And especially if you don't have like tons of cameras set up as well, so you can look at everything. Because I feel like that's usually kind of that setup. What is what is what do people have like in their homes where they have cameras everywhere and they like watch their dogs from work? Sorry, I digress. But no, but that's where, <laughs> where we're headed. It's like the study of the Internet of Things. Um, for, yeah, it's not that different to say you want the Internet of Things devices for um, a greenhouse or a vertical farm, so that you can always be looking at your plants and like messing with sensors, um, turning fans and pumps on and off and stuff. Um, not sure that every farm is really there, but yeah, it seems like that's where the technology is headed because it is becoming a lot cheaper to like make little cameras and little sensors. And right. All up, yeah. Yeah. And that's like kind of how where square roots goes. Like they can like see all those, all those stats and metrics on their phone. I also just don't have that degree of control in the greenhouse anyway. Like we don't have any kind of active cooling system. Um, we have big fans and we have vents and we have heaters. When you're designing a controlled environment, especially one at Brooklyn Grange, which is primarily a soil farm and primarily like very hands-on labor-intensive types of agriculture, like our mentality isn't necessarily let's control every itty bit of the farm, especially if it's going to be a lot more energy intensive. Though I don't know that evaporative cooling pads are actually more energy intensive than giant fans. Um, I think that would actually be a great addition to the greenhouse someday in the future. <laughs> um, active cooling is, there are different ways to do active cooling that isn't just like stick a giant AC in a big glass building. That's not a good idea, but there are other techniques. This sounds very like um, kind of my Luddite ways, but I've, I've also heard of, of um, just in general, which is what you're already doing, but maybe not like with hydroponics or not with hydroponics, but I've heard in greenhouses, people putting huge barrels of water on it because water can actually regulate or it holds on to temperature longer. So if your water cooled down at night, it would hold on to that cool temperature longer into the day um, or if it heated or something like that. But then you're also dealing with the roof that can't necessarily take tons of water or like the weight of like huge tanks of water also and who knows how efficient that is, so. Yeah, so um, that's actually something I'm thinking about as passive heating in the winter more than passive cooling in the summer. I think the issue right now is like at night it's still 70 or 80 degrees. So as you're releasing that heat, you don't actually want that heat release then either. Like there's no good time to release that heat back uh, versus in the winter, like without, I don't need the heaters on at noon in the winter. Like the greenhouse is toasty. It's really nice. It's comfortable. Sometimes the rooftop then opens in the winter in the middle of the day to release heat because it would hit 90. And like, that is when I get the best temperature control in the day in the winter because it warms up on its own on a sunny day and we release any extra, extra heat to the environment. It's great. I love it. <laughs> So what we would be able to do in that situation potentially, and this is like not 
uncommon for greenhouses that are trying to do more passive heating is like cover the north wall with something like bricks or tubes of water like something that has a high capacity to hold heat and the idea is they would get super 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 hot during the day and then release it at night so at night when you actually do need the heaters to keep things above freezing you wouldn't have to put in any more energy you can do that like in homes as well like concrete floors and stuff it's really interesting to hear about stuff being worked out in a real situation, like an, a company building a new site and having to figure this stuff out. So just really, really curious. Um, so we were there, we, we were able to visit last summer, which was like lovely. Yeah. Um, but it, it feels like a very different world. It was um, not quite a year ago. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just really interesting to think about like Grange as a company. Um, and yeah, what do you do with, with that space and that, that greenhouse? Um, so it's curious to hear about like, you know, what you're growing and how it's going and all that. But then, you know, with COVID, it's like, oh my God, that's a huge, uh, I imagine that that affects the business in ways that like cut across, you know, that it would change um, things, not necessarily based on your greenhouse, but just like, um, yeah. stuff. Um, but just to give people a sense, I think one thing that, that would be great is like, could you describe like your greenhouse and where you are in the city and like your, I don't know, just like the view is like bizarre. I mean, it is a really interesting place to to go yeah. to work. Um, it's very yeah. beautiful. It is, is, it is beautiful. I love the view from our rooftop farms. Um, sure. So in general, on a normal day at work, um, I would bike up to this weird old concrete giant like mall, like now it's a mall, but like it's a very industrial looking building um, with big Bed Bath & Beyond signs and uh, Fifth Avenue sacks and things like that. Uh, you'd go in, in the lobby of that building, it's called Liberty Plaza, and there's a Captain America statue on the first floor. Also our mailbox drop off. So we are always asking each other, did you check by Captain America for, for like <laughs> the new seeds or whatever? <laughs> um, key card up through the passenger elevator up to the roof, where we enter into this uh, beautifully painted and muraled a uh, little room that says Brooklyn Grange that opens out onto the rooftop with big glass doors. The first thing you see is a meadow that is beautifully like laid out with like lots of flowers, lots of yummy things for pollinators and stuff like that. The farm itself, um, I could be getting this number wrong, but I think it's a little bit under three acres in terms of like total rooftop space. Most of that is field or protrusions in the actual building. So something most people wouldn't think of on a big industrial building is there are a lot of literal like bits on top of the building like the giant air conditioners or the giant vents like all those like mechanical parts of maintaining the HVAC of a big building needs to go somewhere it's usually the roof so it's also pretty loud up there because <laughs> unless you're like specifically trying not to be near one of those vents you can hear those vents uh, which is why I didn't want to have this phone call on the roof but it's beautiful. You can see the Statue of Liberty from there. Um, you can see all this like weird industrial area around Industry City from there. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I just find it so crazy because like I used to have a practice space there like 2009 or 2010 to 2014 wow. and there was like literally like my friend worked at a framing shop on the building across and there's just like there were sweatshops everywhere like literal sweatshops um and it was just a completely different 
place. And I always feel like it's like back to the future. I say that so many times. I say that in so many areas of New York of like, you go to this place like five years later and you're like, where, where am I? Like what? <laughs> it's also really weird. And this is true for like all three of our firms. You can't see them from the ground. You don't like go to this building. They're like, oh, cool. There's a farm on the roof. Like there's nothing to indicate that. And that's like partly because like we're working with big buildings that have other things that they want to have in their lobbies than like advertising about a farm. But like you literally cannot see. Yeah, I mean, it, that's kind of interesting. That's one of the things that I bring up with my students in the sense of having community gardens on roofs, because a lot of times you have to go through a private building or even if it's not a private building, you have to go through businesses. So in the sense of having a community garden on the roof, that could be really hard because it is also this point of access. Like you have to have a point of access or even knowledge that there is something on a roof. Yeah. You know, and how do you figure that out? I mean, now in industry city, there's like a lot of signs that like probably say, you know, Brooklyn Grange is right upstairs because they want people to know that there is there or Brooklyn Grange in itself will be like, hey, we're right up here because they want people to know, especially if they have farm stands or whatever. But that is, I think that's something that people don't necessarily always think about that don't have experience with rooftop farms or gardens is that you actually have to go through a space, a building that could be private or not private or welcoming or not welcoming, you know? So interesting that you brought that up because I think a lot of people like come up to Brooklyn Grange and they're like, oh my God, this is so cool. Every rooftop in New York City should have a farm on it. And it's like, yeah, except it's actually a lot harder <laughs> than it looks to actually have a farm on the roof. Um, there's so much that goes into it. Like you need to go through a space. You need to have people willing to let you like take your mud boots through the elevator and not get angry at you. <laughs> Or like get reasonable amounts of angry at you and not kick you out. That's a big ask. Oh yeah. And also having an elevator, like whenever my students are like, I'm, yeah, like I'm going to design this garden on my roof. And the first thing that we ask about is like, well, can it take the weight? That's the first thing. There's st structural integrity, like yeah. Sunset Park. I think like, I feel so like, it's luxurious that we have a freight elevator that comes to the roof that works. Like we can actually take big packages up to the roof without it, without going into the passenger elevator, which is another issue with a building. And also like not get stuck in it <laughs> with your like pallet of soil or whatever you're bringing up. I remember in a previous life, I, I was actually an intern for an independent film company when I was in high school. And, but I was a, I was a messenger where I would walk um, instead of bike or whatever. And I went through so many elevators in New York City. Granted, this is in like late 90s, early 2000s. But um, I remember all the elevators that I would go on and I'd be like, am I going to survive this elevator? Like, <laughs> like old school New York City elevators. You're just like, and then, yeah. And then do you want to put like 50 pound, like a bunch of 50 pound bags of soil in that with your body weight right. and your partner's body weight? Yeah. And, you know, so these are real things to think about. For sure. I was just thinking of my friend's creepy New York City elevator that were also like, it was so creepy. And it had like the gate thing that would close, but we were also so mad when they gentrified the building and took it away. So having a, a rooftop farm is like easier said than done. You also need to like have people actually take care of it. That's a problem with community gardens in general, um, is having 
community sometimes who are invested enough to like do it including all the like not fun parts and also and the other thing that i talk about to my students is having a water source yeah and electrical on the roof is really nice that's actually a conversation i was having with uh mutually the other day someone wants to set up a walk-in fridge with coolbot and um which is great because that's a huge bottleneck for a lot of food distribution right now, is not having enough fridge space. So there's like, okay, so how are you gonna power this thing? You don't have like a transformer on this lot. Like solar power probably wouldn't cut it. Yeah, can you talk about just really quickly so um, our listeners know what a cool bot is? Absolutely. Coolbot is essentially a way of making your own uh, refrigerator. So like a walk-in cooler, like a restaurant or a farm's refrigerator, like a big space where you can store food for a period of time. Um, And you do that by hacking an air conditioner. So you have a space, you put an air conditioner in it, and maybe that's a window if you're using like a shipping container or something. Uh, Cut a hole in it, stick an AC in it. So an AC has a um, built-in limitation. It's not supposed to go below 60 degrees um, because if it does, there's a little potential that it will blow up. Um, So the cool bot, (laughs) what it does is it says, okay, no, it's okay. You can go all the way down to, I think, 34 degrees. And then there's another pro that's like actually checking. It's like, are you about to explode a little bit? Well, we'll pause. We'll just like take five minute break and uh, then turn you back on. So it's got sensors in there that trick it. It's very efficient. It's like actually fairly efficient energy-wise. It's actually fairly effective. Um, It has all the same normal problems that any kind of uh, cooling system in a walk-in fridge does. Like it has the same kind of leaks or whatever. Yeah. So, and it's, I don't know, 20% of the price of buying an actual walk-in. And you just need a little bit of technical confidence. Wow. And you could build those walls out of like styrofoam, you know, like you could... Maybe not, but you might maybe some because like when you put like the, a pallet of food in there, you want to like not dent the wall, but <laughs> <laughs> so maybe like FRP board or metal, something like that. This episode is brought to you by the Great Grow Along, a three-day hosted virtual garden festival connecting you with the influencers, tastemakers and cutting-edge content of today's gardening world. The Great Grow Along will feature 40-plus sessions on topics ranging from houseplants to DIY landscaping. New plant parents and first-time gardeners will gain practical advice and creative inspiration from celebrated garden experts and industry leaders. Costing $29.95, tickets allow attendees to mix and match a wide range of sessions, or choose to follow one of the conference's six tracks, which include edible gardening, urban gardening, pollinators and plants, DIY landscaping, houseplants, and dig deeper. The Great Grow Along will take place March 19th through 21st, 2021. Sign up at greatgrowalong.com. So these projects, you are also involved with like community efforts, like mutual aid projects. Um, do you want to talk a little about that in general and 
maybe that's like allied with this question of like, what's been going on the last few months? Like how life's been a little yeah. bit since starting your farm on the roof. And then, you know. To be honest, I am a little bit restrained in how much I can participate in community efforts just because health concerns at home, I can't like take on more risk than I absolutely have to in terms of COVID. So if I don't need to go to a place physically, I, I won't. So I work, but I can't like go volunteer in person to like deliver food myself or pack food myself. Um, so I've been trying to do things that I can do remotely from home. Like I was furloughed in April, right after the shutdown, um, while the Grange was figuring everything out. So during that period, I was like making a bunch of masks and bringing that over to people at home and stuff like that. Um, and I also started to get involved with this group, Mutual Aid New York City, which is a citywide group. Um, and then there are also many neighborhood groups like Astoria Mutual Aid, Red Hook Mutual Aid, things like that, um, or other groups by other names that are mutual aid in spirit, if not by name, because the whole idea of mutual aid is people help each other. Um, it's not a new idea, but that's like the core of like what that phrase means. So the citywide group is mainly there as like administrative help, like setting up air table for people. Um, and me and a few other people were interested in starting the food for all team to help coordinate food rescue efforts. Um, I don't personally want to like be doing like the logistics of that, of like, I have a pallet of this food, where does it go? I think there are a lot of people on the ground already doing that work and doing it very, very well. Um, I don't need to explain to them how to do it for my computer when I don't know how to do it better. Um, so I'm trying to find ways that I can support. So that meeting we had yesterday, like I've heard from a bunch of different local community groups that refrigeration is a bottleneck. Um, so what do we do about that? There's this group in, I believe they're in Long Island City, uh, called Lifeline Grocery. Um, and they have the land and they have the funds to be able to buy a shipping container and buy a cool pot and set up a walk-in cooler so they can start delivering um, more, more fresh vegetables, more perishables, and protein to people in their neighborhood, which is amazing. And that's like definitely a limiting factor in like the quality of food that we can get out. If we can only get non-perishables out, that's not a very high standard. So the meeting yesterday was just like technical questions and like site evaluation. And then maybe the site will sort of be a little bit of guinea, a guinea pig for the Food for All team with mutual aid follow this process and then make a guiding document and help other groups do the same thing. Um, so that's the kind of issue that I'm trying to identify and trying to provide support on. Like I knew about CoolBots because I work on farms. Farms use CoolBots because they're cheap and they, they're easy and they work. And because I work on farms, I know a bunch of people who have done the installs before. So I can like, I have those resources. Anyone listening? Yeah. Has any information or resources, feel free to get in touch for sure. That's good to know in general, just like within these circumstances, or even when there isn't a pandemic going on, um, you know, with certain neighborhoods and populations that don't have access to fresh fruits and vegetables, it's not just about like having a farmer's market or something like that. It's also about storing those fresh fruits and vegetables, making them accessible all the time. You know, so it's like if you don't have a supermarket or something like that, like, do you have a storage area where all of these could keep? And so they don't get wasted or you have more access to it in general. So that's that, 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 and I've never thought about that. So. And that's another sort of like another aspect of this is like, how do you start a buying club? 
how do you start buying things in enough bulk that you reduce the price from wholesalers? How do you buy from wholesalers? And then you can start having these community distribution points, even in areas that don't have great food access. Well, I think another question, just a corollary, is like, what is the Grange been doing? Because um, they're back in action, right? So can you say a little yeah. bit the idea of um, how COVID has, has impacted that farm specifically, since we already discussed, you know, it's a pretty different farm operation to start with. Sure. So one thing to understand about Broken Grange is we do have three different departments. Farming is only one of them. And then we also have our events department and our design build department that goes and installs like green roofs and gardens and on other sites and other rooftops and sometimes in their gardens. Um, so the uh, shutdown pretty much eliminated two revenue streams. So we're still adapting. The design build team is like back at it. The events team, as soon as like we're able to have gatherings of people on the roof, I'm sure we will. Um, but everything is sort of restrained. We've got like online workshops and everything, but like everyone's a little zoomed out. For the farm team, I think um, we've had to farm a little differently this year than we normally would. We just like don't have enough um, labor hours to put into everything that we normally would want to put labor hours into. So if we have the goal of keeping a farm weed free this year, we just, we can't do that, which sucks because every time you let a weed go to seed, you get a hundred more weeds next year. You're adding to the seed bank in your soil. And we have a new farm at Sunset Park. It's only a year, two and a half years old. So now's the time to make sure that it doesn't get out of hand. And we, we just can't. Oh no. It sucks. <laughs> yeah, gallon soga, man. It, thousands oh, man. of seeds. Yeah, so that's been a little tough. I've had to cut back my hours in hydro a lot. Um, I work in the field a few days, like a day and a half a week. I work on the design build team one day a week, and I'm in the greenhouse the rest of the time. So the way I operate in the greenhouse also has to change accordingly. Um, I have to like cut out things that like I consider essential to running the system well in order to just like scrape by, which is hard. I'm a kind of particular person sometimes, and I'm like, there's a way to do this thing right, and it's like, I can't do it. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of interesting because how a lot of businesses run and sometimes people run being like freelancers, they can have multiple jobs, right? And like, if you are doing a farm, but then you also have events and a lot of those events are weddings or catered events or parties, that is, or even for restaurants, like that's a huge revenue. And when yeah. you can't have that, if that is your backup, if your backup is not there, I think it's also like the idea of sustainab sustainably gardening and farming in the city in the first place and how much we pay for food and how that has to do with access and all this other stuff. But the idea of sustainably growing food in the city by just growing food. It's, it's weird. Um, yeah, so our outlets obviously had to like flip completely this summer. Our CSA program at my site, specifically at the Sunset Park Farm, uh, I think it increased tenfold because that's something people are in the market for <laughs> this summer a lot more than they were last summer. Um, so that's one. We also got a grant from NYU uh, Langone, I believe. They have a food pantry in our neighborhood. So we donate a lot of food to them every week. I think like in the neighborhood of 700, 800 shares a week. Wow. Very, yeah. So that's, that's amazing. Outlets. Yeah. And we've got like wholesale coming on online a little bit, like from restaurant accounts. 
but that's fluctuating because they're still figuring out what they what they need and what they want and what they can afford and everything. It's been really cool to be like harvesting so much food for pantry though. Yeah, that's that's amazing that 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 happened so fast that you guys got a grant from Langone and yeah. then are now able to yeah, I mean, that's incredible. It's a, it was a really quick pivot. Yeah. Wow. I mean, and that's a benefit of small farms as well, is you've got enough diversity on the farm and you've got enough, like, sort of nimbleness that, like, as long as you have the connections, you, you pivot. You can. Yeah. Yeah. Our sales team, like, has killed it this summer. <laughs> and I feel like a lot of times, especially small-scale farmers aren't, um, I mean, they're used to hustling. <laughs> what they do right uh -huh. for sure for sure so you feel like um in general it seems like a lot of the small farms in the city have proven pretty resilient in terms of um just keeping going you know they're still growing and they're trying to get food out um and i think that's really interesting almost like natural experiment like you know what what works yeah. and how does it work um are there any lessons or the things that you've thought about in the last few months that have surprised you or that you feel like you've learned um you know given again like a year ago when we were talking <laughs> Um, and just so much that's happened from, from now to then, any, anything jump out, um, whether about growing or like working with people or the city, I don't know. And, you know, just, yeah, I don't know. I feel like you've seen so many parts of the system and having grown up here, it's like, you must've really like mapped it all out in your head a little bit, I imagine. Um, a bit. I mean, you've seen that I like, I made a map of like all the farms that I knew about in New York city, just because I like, I like the visual layout trying to think about that question a little bit like I've grown a lot as a farmer in the last year I think there's just a lot of just like operational stuff that's really hard to learn on your own or from people who have equal or less experience than you um, and that's what I was working with at, with all those small farms that were in and around New York City between Cornell and Brooklyn Grange um, I never was working with someone who knew more than me which is like sometimes fun because you're collaborating and like not that they didn't know things, but we were sort of content, like at level. Um, and now I'm working with professional farmers who've been doing it for years and years and years. So just like, how do you move fast when you're in the greenhouse? Like, that's huge. You need to be able to like use both hands. Um, like that threshold of you need to be able to harvest a certain value per hour to make it the harvest worth your time. Like that's a concept I hadn't had to work with before because no one was making me work with that number, that kind of number numerical threshold before. But that's so real, because like you hear all the time of all the, these farms being like, yeah, it's not really worth harvesting this thousand pound of tomatoes, because it's like, it won't pay me back for the labor. Like it gave me context for that kind of fact, and that I need to like be able to evaluate that myself. Um, operations stuff like that, in that direction, other things that I've learned and sort of gotten a shape of in New York City. I'm still sort of like, urban agriculture is really cool and it's really fun. I think there's still a disconnect with like how much it can do. Like I, I feel like there's still some people who come here and be like, oh my God, we're gonna like put a farm on every roof. We're gonna feed the whole city. It's like, nah, <laughs> and that's, we're not gonna do that for a lot of reasons. We talked about the whole like, why you can't put a, a farm on every roof already. Um, there's also the whole, like, you realize there's over 8 million people packed in a really small space. And we have acres and acres and acres of much cheaper ways to grow food near us. Why should we grow it here? I mean, that's kind of somebody, um, 
oh, I forget who, I was talking to my friend Nikki the other day and um, she was talking about the how um, 30% of um, retail spaces, it might be retail or something like that, will not be rented this year. And the idea of if um, indoor growing can replace that somehow, that's actually a question she asked me for an interview, which is kind of funny that I'm now, I don't know if I should be asking you about it. But <laughs> No, but that's a great question. Given that opportunity, hypothetically, what could we do with it? I haven't crunched those numbers in a while, so I don't really remember like what amount of space it would take to quote unquote feed the city. And again, like, are we talking grains here? Are we talking, talking staple crops? Are we talking root veg? Are we talking meat and dairy and chicken and fish? Like food is more than lettuce and basil. Yeah, I mean, and what would the bottlenecks be? Like, because it's not necessarily space. Um, it may be things like you're, you're talking about, like knowledge. Like it may not, it may not be mm. capital or space. Like often it's framed as like things are expensive or yeah, there's not enough roof space to feed New York, regardless of what crop you pick, which is true, right? Columbia did a big report and it's like, even if every farm was completely green with food growing, you couldn't really feed New York in a meaningful way. You could, it would make some difference. It'd be great for other yeah. reasons, but it wouldn't like feed everyone. So it's like, well, okay, let's take that inside. But then how do you do that, right? How do you roll out a legion of new farmers overnight? You know, there's just not enough training programs. There is there enough interest, you know? How would that like work as a business? Like, is this meant to be a New Deal um, public program or is this a yeah. like, company? And so I think it's worth like thinking about these extreme cases or thought experiments because it is really interesting. Like there is tons of empty space even before COVID. There's so many untenanted spaces in New York and obviously COVID's like exacerbated that. So, I mean, that really shouldn't be the barrier if, like, to the degree we want it to do indoor growing or, sure. or I think it's a good idea. Yeah. I think the whole concept of knowledge workers in agriculture is really interesting, I think. Just, like, who the knowledge workers actually are. There's that whole, like, stat that was floating around a few years ago. It's like, oh, no, our farmers are aging. They're 58 years old or something, 62 years old now or something since those headlines. Yeah, so you mean the agricultural workers, so not the people who own the land, who are called mm -hmm. the farmers, but the agricultural workers who come in and farm the land. Who have come in and farm the land. Even the farm managers are often not counted in that number. Especially, even even more so when you're talking about quote-unquote specialty crops like fruits and vegetables. For, for the listener, the only crops that aren't specialty crops are grains and I think cotton. Wow. So like rice, wheat corn, soy, no. things that are very, very like grass and machinable. Um, so all of those, especially like you need knowledge workers to manage that operation. Those don't count in that 58 years old statistic usually. So when we're talking about like knowledge workers for urban agriculture, I mean, first of all, it depends on like what kind of urban agriculture, like are we talking indoors controlled environment? Are we talking like Brooklyn grains, rooftop soil farming? Um, some of that, like, some of that exists and could be, like, brought into the city if we wanted to. And also the idea of, like, community gardeners and the, all of the people who come to New York City that have an agricultural background that come from agricultural places. Yeah. Yeah, totally. They know what they're doing. Think about, Maya, how you learned. Like, you learned really eclectically. It wasn't through, like, one program at Cornell or another. Uh-huh. 
like you learned from companies, you learned a little from these institutions and you learned a little yep. from community gardeners and people yep. who were doing, who weren't affiliated with big institutions. So it's like, yeah, it doesn't. And then that, that seems to be the case with everyone I talk to about how they became a farmer. It's like in, in the city, it's, it's very rare to have like this one moment of like, well, I just went off and did one thing and then I was a farmer. So that's, yeah, I do feel like that would be like the gap. Like if we wanted to increase farms like really rapidly due to COVID or whatever, how do you, and, and let's assume there's interest and like there's some land, how do you then like roll that program out and who gets to kind of be in charge of it? And how do you make that equitable? I mean, those are just, I think, really interesting questions that hopefully are like meaningful because this could actually happen, you know? Yeah, I think another aspect is like for those people who, you know, come from other countries who have this agricultural knowledge who are then living in New York City and they have other jobs. So let's say if, if they did want to pursue that again, how do you build that trust with them? How do you pay them enough? How do you you know, there's a reason why they're not practicing agriculture. So I think part of that is just like the mindset that we, the three of us who are white, would yeah. be in the power to make those decisions. Totally. Yep. Um, Thank I think you. part of that to um, make a system equitable is to not have us make all the decisions. Totally. <laughs> um, when you asked, like, how would we roll up that program? My first thought was like, ask farm school. Like, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not an expert on this, but like, they have a network of people who have been through a training program in urban agriculture. Mm -hmm. That's a great place to start. Yeah, I mean, that is a, that is definitely like a great, great program. Right. So I would not be afraid that like, we don't have enough people who know how to do these things. I think we have enough people who like, understand how like HVAC works for like managing that aspect of it. I think we know, have enough people who know how plants work, like through networks like farm school, a lot of whom like would love to work in urban agriculture. There just aren't a ton of jobs. And like that, that's one aspect of urban agriculture that is so, so appealing is that you get to stay in the amazing place that New York City is and farm. Yeah. Like that's why I'm here doing it. Cause like, I love my home and I want to stay here. Even if I'm, who knows, maybe I won't forever. Yeah, does that sort of answer your question? I don't feel like I have a very concrete of like, this group of people, roll them out. But I feel like this is, I feel like the skill sets exist and it's a question of networking. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. It's like a social coordination problem, you know, it's yeah. a problem, not, a, not necessarily a matter of absolute resources of any one kind, including to your point knowledge. It's more like, yeah, why, like, Melissa, like why are people who might have knowledge not interested in some city project, some public private partnership to like green the city and how would you enroll them in that? Um, you know, and, and yeah, I, I agree. Maybe it's starting with different leaders, like a different model entirely. That's more communal. And yeah, no, I think, I think there, there's um, maybe hopefully that could happen. You know, urban ag could go in more in that direction. Well, it's, it also is happening. It's totally happening in many areas throughout the city. That's something I wanted to say earlier, actually, like, especially with regards to the mutual aid. One of the things that I find the most help hopeful about this whole situation is we are developing our resilience in terms of community response. The next time we have a hurricane, a lot of these avenues will already be developed. Yeah. That is great. We need that. A lot of these places, like that place in Long Island City, um, grocery, Life, Lifeline Grocery, I think. Um, their attitude is not to like invest in the shipping container and then shut it down once COVID has a vaccine. Like they plan to keep doing this further for foreseeable 
the foreseeable future. That's amazing. A lot of these places are like, oh, we, we got that push to meet this need that was already in our community, and we're going to keep doing it. The crisis predates COVID. I mean, there's food access problems before COVID that were severe, and the COVID made more severe and, and made visible to people who otherwise could ignore them or pretend to ignore them or whatever. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, that, that's really the hopeful part, I guess, is that resilience could go beyond like a temporary business adjust, adjustment and more like how communities relate to, you know, internally and how they like relate to these other stakeholders, including, yeah, like for-profit farms. Um, yeah. So yeah, that, that is really cool. Is there anything you want to shout out? Is there anything you have going on like online that you want people to um, know about? Like, should they follow you on a social media profile or follow the Grange or what, what's your? Sure. You can follow me on Instagram at Mabel Mix. Um, I'm terrible at social media, so I very rarely post. You can also just reach me either at my Brooklyn Grange email address, M-A-Y-A at brooklyngrangefarm.com or my personal which is M-A-Y-A period K-U-T-Z at gmail.com. My class at New York Botanic Garden, which is every winter, uh, you can find that on the catalog once the winter uh, course catalog is posted. Um, you can find me at the Brooklyn Grange Farm in Sunset Park. We have rooftop markets at each farm on the weekends now. The one at my farm is on Sundays from, I believe, 10 to 4 every day, so people can just come up right up to the rooftop. Thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. Yeah, it's really nice to see you guys. Yeah, yeah it's great to check in. Um, it's really yeah. good. I'm glad you're doing well. And yeah, thanks for making time. I know you're busy, but uh, it's great to connect and actually, you know, just chat. Yeah, for sure. Fields theme music is by Sam Tyndall. Our amazing producing engineer at Heritage Radio is Liam Warner. And another big thanks to Liam Werner for the music on this episode. Fields is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>